Now in Matthew chapter 27, <clears throat> we're going to pick up at about verse 29. And now Pilate has now washed his hands of Jesus' blood. And he said, I'm not, I have no part of it. I'm innocent in that. And you know, you really can't do that. And so let me tell you something in history uh, that let me just uh, read to you. It, was, um, it says that Pilate, eventually, after, way after the fact, was eventually banished by Caligula to Gaul, a distant region far to the northwest of Italy, beyond the Alps. There he suffered what sounds like an emotional or mental breakdown and ultimately committed suicide. Now, this is the man who decided the fate of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And maybe it was just too much because remember, his wife tried to warn him. It was just a really tough thing. So now they've got Jesus. <clears throat> He's been handed over. He's been scourged. And now they've started to mock him. They stripped him down naked. They put a robe on him. Uh, the robe is a chalmus, which in the Greek means just to the elbows. So he's naked from the waist down. So it's a very humiliating thing. And it's going to get even more humiliating as the whole process goes on. They've uh, Well, let me read verse 29. It says, And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and a reed in his right hand, and, and, they, and they knelt down and uh, before him and mocked him saying hail king of the jews and remember we said that they put the crown of thorns on and the, the thorns about two and a half inches long very very uh very very pointed and they would be in these containers in different areas they were used as kindling to start fires so it's convenient so they take it they weave the crown of thorns and uh, press it into him and as we told you last week that now this begins a piece of the reverse of the curse jesus bleeds uh, as it were, uh, drops of blood in the garden. So there's the blood redeeming process beginning, reversing the curse. Now the crown of thorns, because one of the things in the fall of man, Adam and Eve, was that plants would bring forth thorns. Now Jesus has taken the curse on his body and he's reversing the curse because Galatians chapter 3 teaches us, curse is he who hangs on a tree. So Jesus is taking the curse of sin upon his life. He's taking our curse so we could walk in a blessed life. And if I didn't tell you anything else today, that's enough. And you're a blessed person. Never forget that. So you're not a victim. You're a victor in Jesus Christ. Never, ever forget that. Now, one of the things I wanted to point out that I stopped last week on, <clears throat> and I want to read verse, um, verse 30 to be able to make the complete uh, idea of it says this as they're doing this they put the crown of thorns on him they put a reed in his right hand as a mock scepter they spat on him and took the reed they now they take the reed out of his hand and they begin to beat him on the head with that reed now remember there's a crown of thorns on his head so as they beat it they're driving the thorns deeper and deeper into his scalp but can you imagine spitting on God in the flesh can you imagine if these Roman soldiers never repented and put their faith in Christ? Because we don't know in the aftermath of their life. We don't know what happened. Can you imagine them one day standing before Jesus? And, and, and realizing this is the guy I spit on? This is the one I beat over the head? Now before you take that thought, that well, that's crazy. Well, there's plenty of people who do that today. They spit on Jesus. They, they deny him. They mock him. They take his name in vain. They use the G damn word all, all the time. Or they say in a mocking sense, or sarcastic, Jesus Christ. They say it in just that way. It's like spitting on him. We've got to be careful with things like that, Christians. And I know I'm, I have a Christian audience here. But here's what I want to show you about these two verses especially. They put a reed. They grabbed a reed. 
And reeds, you know, they're from the water sources. They grabbed a reed, they put it in his hand as a mock scepter. And then they take it out of his hand and start beating him over the head with that reed. Now, Matthew, the writer of this gospel, he inserts an Old Testament um, statement, and I want to take you back to it in this gospel of Matthew. We started it, you know, months ago. Look back at Matthew chapter 12. Watch this. Because I want to show you, I like at times to take a certain article or a word in Scripture and follow it. And the read is a very interesting follow. Now watch what uh, Matthew writes that Jesus said, that Jesus quoted from in the Old Testament. In Matthew 12, 20, Jesus says, um, quoting Isaiah, A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. That's amazing. Now let me tell you what's going on there. You see, <clears throat> shepherds. Shepherds would take uh, two uh, hollow pieces of reed and they'd make a musical instrument out of them to play. They were easily made and they were easily broken. And since they break easy and they're easily made, once they broke, guess what they would do with them? they just throw it away. But here we find Jesus quoting from Isaiah concerning himself. He says, I don't throw away broken reeds. I, I fix them. I don't, I don't put out smoldering, smoking fire. I bring the fire back into a person's life. Now I find it fascinating that they take a reed and they beat him over the head with it. And here we find that Jesus we're the reeds. He fixes our lives. And how many people has Jesus fixed their life? Christian, only for us to turn our back on him. Only for us to say, you know, I don't, I mean, okay, Jesus, I got enough of you now. Well, I, you know, I, I'm going to take about a six-month year break from fellowship and church. I, I'm okay. Well, that's like taking the reed and beating him over the head with it. Isn't that crazy? Let me take a step further, and I'll use this application. For some of you in spiritual leadership, or in leadership, you're, you're, you're a boss or somebody out there in the leadership world. I want you to turn to an Old Testament book called Ecclesiastes. Go to Ecclesiastes, because I want to take a thought out of this. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. And look at Ecclesiastes chapter 10. And I want to give, for those of you in leadership and any, anything in your life, this is going to help you, I think. Because remember, they take the reed... Jesus healed reeds, and now the reeds are taken and used as weapons to beat him and to wound him. The writer Solomon, who's called the preacher, in Ecclesiastes, he writes this. It's very wise, wise sayings in this letter. It says in verse 9 of chapter 10, He who quarries stones may be hurt by them, and he who splits logs may be endangered by them. Now, let's break down uh, practically what he's saying. He says, look, back in the day, they quarry stones. They're quarrying, quarrying, breaking stones. And they could break off a stone, and that stone could fall from somewhere and hurt them. See, the very thing you quarry, the very thing you're fashioning, is the very thing it could come back to hurt you. And then he adds that he who splits logs, you could split logs, cut them, cut them, and you could be endangered by them. It could break off and shoot back at you, stab you. That's a very important thing to remember. Let me tell you, as a spiritual leader, a person's been in spiritual leadership for decades, 
Um, and those of you in any leadership position, the very reads that you help, sometimes they'll turn around and whack you on the head. The very people that you help, sometimes they'll turn around and they will wound you. They will say things about you. And it will be as if you've never done anything good for them, as if you didn't even know them. Some of these people you'll put your trust in. Some of them will become very good friends of yours. And then one day, any little thing can happen, they'll turn on you on a dime. And these people who you've been coring and molding their life and helping them out and giving them jobs and done this, they can hurt you and they can wound you. Now let me tell you what I've learned in life. When these reeds turn around, and are, that I've helped and they're used, now they're trying, and now they hurt you. I, I can't allow myself to get hard. I, I cannot allow my heart to get hard. You know why? Because then I won't help others. Because then I'll be in bondage to somebody from the past. And I can't afford that. Not only can I not afford that, I just don't want to do that. I want to be a person that Jesus can use. Now let me tell you the better way to handle it when people wound you. Instead of making it, make it, letting it make you harder, let it make you softer. Let it break you. Let the wounds break you and soften you up. That will be a better you tomorrow instead of a bitter you tomorrow. That makes a lot of sense, especially those of you in leadership. Some of you as parents, you need to get that one down because you know your kids can hurt you at times and it can make you better, make you bitter. So you don't want to lose your love. You don't want to lose your soft heart because reeds will turn around, reeds that you have helped, been there for, financially done this, whatever it was, they'll beat you in the head and you cannot allow that to taint you. Jesus could have in that moment said, forget humanity. I'm going to get a hard heart. I'm going to no crosses today or ever. Forget all of you people for what you're doing to me. He didn't do that, did he? He stayed soft. He stayed loving. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame? What was the joy set before him? You, me, our salvation, our escape from hell. He didn't grow hard in heart. He stayed soft. And I think it's a great lesson right here as all this craziness is going on in his life in this moment. I hope that helps somebody out there. Verse 31. After they had uh, mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him. Now, remember, it's a robe that goes down to the elbows. And um, you've got to remember that he's been scourged. I'm not done with that verse. He's been scourged. So his back is hanging like ribbons and you can see some of the organs in his back. That's how bad it would be. It becomes like hamburgers back. They put that robe on him and now they rip it off him. Can you imagine what that felt like? How much of his skin went with that as it coagulated onto that robe? Opened up more wounds? And after they rip it off him, they put his own garments back on him, which they would do. They're going to put his garments back on him He's going to carry that cross while he's wearing his garments and led him away to crucify him. Now, these are just preliminaries. This is as bad as this stuff is. This is nothing compared to where he's going to end up and what they will do at that place of crucifixion. Now, verse 32, something happens on the way 
to Golgotha. It says, And as they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. Now, there's so much in this little verse here. Um, but the first thing is, we know that that cross beam got too heavy. Okay, guys, there's no way, and you see in pictures where Jesus was carrying the whole cross, cross beam, and the post. There's just no way. He has been up all night. He's gone without food and water. He is bleeding to death. He is in such a weakened condition. He's going into shock. He can't carry that big a cross. He's carrying the cross beam. That's what he's carrying. And even that, it's just too much weight. It weighs about 110 pounds. He's carrying it about 600 yards uphill from the fortress of Antonio to the north side of Jerusalem outside the walls. Of course he couldn't carry it all the way. And all of a sudden there's a man there, Simon of Cyrene. Huh. And it says he's pressed into service. That's interesting. Because in that day, because the Romans were the oppressors, they are in power. If you're standing there, they could take their spear. They could press it into the blade, shoulder blade of your back. And everyone in that day knew once you felt that spear pressed there, it's a Roman soldier. And now, according to the Roman law, was that he could force you to do what he wanted, especially carry his gear for one mile. You had no choice. You are pressed into service. And why it said one mile earlier in, in Matthew is because they had mile markers. The Romans set up mile markers. You knew how far one mile was. And that's why Jesus said when they forced you to go one mile, go two. In other words, don't just do what they say for you. Go further. Be a greater servant than that. He was teaching people to be a servant even under terrible circumstances. Now, back to Simon. He feels that. He's pressing the service. They want him to help Jesus carry the cross to this place that Simon doesn't know where he's going. Now, who is this guy? And why do we need to know about him? Well, he's there because it's Passover. He has traveled about 800 miles to get there. That's a distance back in those days. You and I could drive that in a day, just driving straight through. Not them. But he's there for Passover. That means he's a believer in Yahweh. He's a North African man from Libya. And so all of a sudden, he's pressed into duty here. Now, can you imagine that your life, all of a sudden, this is not what you wanted. Why, why am I cast into this? And now everybody is lining the streets, and I'm, I'm thrust into this? Have you ever noticed that sometimes life can thrust you and I into unwelcome, unwanted, unpleasant circumstances? And, and you know, some of them, they just do not resolve that quickly. They do not end fast. Oh, we're wishing inside as it's happening. Why did this happen to me? I wish it was over. I'm sure this is what this man thought. He has no clue who Jesus is, more than likely. He's just a bystander that day here for the Passover. But let me tell you about life. And unless you've lived a little longer, you will not understand this, but as you get older, you will have this happen to you, and you will understand it. Sometimes the unwanted circumstances that we are thrust into 
turn us into the man or woman God always wanted us to be. Let me say it again. Sometimes the unwanted circumstances that you and I are thrust into can turn us into the man or woman that God always wanted us to be. Why would I say that? Because, because this man, Simon of Cyrene, doesn't want to be in that situation, but it will forever change his life. Forever change his life. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I want you to look at Mark chapter 15. Look at Mark chapter 15. We're going to find out something a little bit more about this man, Simon of Cyrene, because Mark chooses to give us a little bit about his family. He's going to name family members. And in Mark 15, verse 21, it says, they pressed into service a passerby. Same story, Mark's slant on it. Because Mark, we believe, took his gospel as Peter dictated to him. As Peter was getting older and they, Peter felt like, I better share what I know. And Mark's the one who writes it all down. He says, press into service a passerby coming from the country. Simon of Cyrene. There it is again. Now notice what Mark inserts. He says, Simon of Cyrene is the father of Alexander and Rufus. To bear his cross. Now he names Simon of Cyrene, the man who's helping Jesus carry the cross. Now he names two of his kids. There's Alexander and there's Rufus. Well, that's interesting. Why would he name him the kids? Well, here's a possibility. Turn over to Romans chapter 16. Now watch this. Turn to Romans 16 and verse 13. And watch what Paul writes in 16:13. And we believe strongly that this is so. In verse chapter 16, verse 13, Paul says, Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. What? What if, and I can't totally prove it, but I think it's a strong lean that this is Simon of Cyrene's son. That tells you that Simon of Cyrene became a believer. We know that's a fact because Simon of Cyrene, we can trace all the way back to Simon of Cyrene, what's known as the Coptic Church, there, especially in North Africa, in the Egypt area, the Coptic Church. There's a Coptic Church in Jerusalem. We can trace it all the way back to this man. He started, so he became a follower of Christ after this event. This one unwanted experience and turned him into the man God always wanted. And now his wife becomes a great woman of God because Paul calls Rufus his son, his mother, and Paul says, and my mother. She was a great woman of God who even helped Paul. And they have a son named Rufus who becomes a choice man in the Lord. Isn't that amazing how circumstances can so turn your life in a way that you come to know God and it changes your life forever and it changes you, changes your wife, changes your kids, and, there, and, the, and it starts organizations and starts uh, uh, lineage and everything else. And that's something I think it's great as you follow this man's life. Now let me give you a little tidbit of, that just strikes me interesting. As you come back to Matthew chapter 27. The man pressed into service is named Simon of Cyrene. What is Peter's original name? Simon. What did Peter say he would never do? He said, I'll never deny you, Jesus. In other words, I'll never run. I'll never deny you. I'll be right by your side every step of the way, no matter how tough it gets. You're not there. Simon's gone. 
And so God has to press into service another Simon. Because the one who said he'd never leave Jesus left him. Which Simon are you? Which Simon are you? Does it get too tough and, oh, just too many problems? I just got to step away from God and church and worship and everything else. It's just too tough. Are you the Simon that stands there and gets pressed into service and say, okay, well, that's what I got to do. And I'm going to do it. And your life is enriched by it. Even though it is difficult. It's enriched. Your wife's life is enriched. Your children become followers of Christ. You start organizations. You leave great lineage. Isn't that great? Which one are you going to be? Now, let's read on. Verse 33. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means a place of the skull. Now, Golgotha is outside the city, which is interesting because we find in Hebrews 13, 12 that Jesus was killed outside, you know, that he would be killed outside the city. We find that the sin offering in Leviticus chapter 4, the refuse, the unclean parts, are burned outside the city. We know that the uh, scapegoat is sent outside the city after the Day of Atonement. He's sent out and he dies out there carrying the sins of the people. Everything is outside the city. It's interesting. Well, Golgotha is outside the city. It's outside the northern wall. If you get to go there with us in a, in a couple of years to, uh, back to Israel, um, if you decide to go, um, you're going to get to visit the place of Golgotha, place of the skull. It actually kind of looks like the face of a skull. There's kind of a similarity. And it's a little hillside. And it's near where the possibility that you're going to visit a garden tomb, it's near there, right near it. And it's interesting, this hill, and it's on the north side of the city, so it's a, it was a well-traveled road on the north side of the city, and that's where they would crucify people so everybody could see them. Okay, now, <clears throat> verse 33. I'm sorry, verse 34. They gave him um, wine to drink mixed with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. So they try to give him wine and gall. Gall's another name for myrrh. He tastes it and he says, no, I'm not drinking that. Now, why? What's, what's going on here? Well, myrrh was a sedative. It, it, it alleviated pain. Hmm. That means Jesus carrying our sins, going through tremendous pain and torment and torture, says, I'm going through it with all my faculties. I'm not going to deaden the pain. I'm not going to numb myself. I'm not even going to get a little bit intoxicated. I don't need any escape routes. I'm going to carry this whole thing because I'm here for mankind. Now let me tell you about myrrh. Question. What was given to Jesus at birth? Myrrh. And it was accepted at that time. But at his death... He rejects the myrrh. You know why? Because Jesus is the, himself is the personification of the myrrh. He is the alleviator of the pain of sin in our life. I don't need that. I am that. I've come to relieve the pain of sin. I've come to shed my blood so that you could be forgiven, so that you could experience the blessings of God and not the curse. I am the personification of it. And therefore, he takes the full brunt of sin. He says, I don't need any myrrh. Now watch this. 
Turn to Psalm 45 and look at Psalm 45, verse 6, 7, and 8. I'm going to read it quickly and then just come back. It's just a little cool little tidbit. Psalm 45, verse 6, 7, and 8. Watch this. It says, um, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is a scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. He's talking about the Messiah, Jesus. Now, your God, therefore God, your God, meaning Jesus to come, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. All your garments are fragrant with myrrh. Ah, his garments are fragrant with myrrh. Oh, his garments bring the alleviation of pain and from our lives because it carries the sins of mankind. Now, verse 35. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. It's interesting. Um, well, first of all, they strip him again. They take his garments and all the clothes now are up for grabs with the guards and they're going to play games to win his, to win, to win what they can win of his clothing. He won't need them anymore because he's going to be stripped naked and put on that cross because one of the things about crucifixion, it was public and it was humiliating. And it was public on that road so all could see traveling along that road and everyone could see as a deterrent to crime. The Romans said, you do wrong things, this is what happens to you. So people don't want to mess up because they don't want to be hung on a cross. But it's humiliating. But if you notice, it says, and you read this in every gospel, verse 35, and, and when they had crucified him, you know, it's interesting, they, and they, it's not like they say, and they crucified him. Well, why, why, they, why don't they go into like three chapters of a description of what's going on on that cross? Why don't they? Well, because they've seen it every day. They've walked those roads. The Romans crucified people quite often. Now, let me talk about this. And this may be the only time I can, maybe I'll just finish here on this. Crucifixion. It was invented by the Persians. Now, the reason why they would elevate a man up uh, in that position is they worshiped the god Ormuz. And, um, you know, he was the god of the earth. And they thought that if you kill the man or kill them on the earth, that the criminal's blood, if it hits the earth, that's bad because Ormuz is the god of the earth. He's a pure god, so we can't do that. So we've got to lift up the man. So they invented crucifixion. The Egyptians took crucifixion and they utilized it. The Romans took it from the Egyptians and they perfected it. Oh, they perfected it. And it was meant for a man to die a slow, excruciating death. Jesus gets to the place of Golgotha, the place of crucifixion. Now you got to imagine it. They take the wood beam off his shoulders. Mm. They throw him to the ground. His back is hanging like ribbons. It's open. And now all kinds of dirt and gravel get into all the open wounds. You could see the organs in his back, remember. They pull him by the arms. They stretch him out on that crossbeam. They'll kneel down 
on the forearms, hold it that, and they stretch them. They'll reach for this little indentation somewhere in here because they wouldn't have, the nails didn't go on the hands because they would just rip right out. You'd rip right out of that thing. The nails are five inch long iron nails. They're squared at the top and they go down. And they would nail them through there. Do the same thing on the other arm, kneel down the forearm, nail them through there. And then they're going to hoist them up, put that cross beam up there on that pole. Or if they put the pole there and they lift it up, we don't know exactly which way. They stretch them out and they lift them up. Then they take the right foot over the left foot and they nail it. Now, early on, they would stretch the legs out, but they found out, they found out through trial and error that the victim would die too quickly. They didn't want people dying quickly. They learned if they bent the knees, as they put it hanging there, and right over left foot, they would last longer on that cross because they could you know, stretch out their legs and push themselves up, gather air, drop down, because you see, on a cross, you're suffocating. You're going up and down on purpose, intentionally, so that you can get air, you, that you can inhale and exhale. Can you imagine pushing up on your feet with the nail through there? And then can you imagine dropping down on, and then you're hanging from there? Let me tell you about that. They understood, they found that these certain nerves in certain places as you put the pressure from the nail, it would send excruciating pain throughout the body, in some cases just exploding in the head. And Jesus is going up and down for six hours. The body begins to cramp up, the muscles. I am a cramper. I know what it is to wake up in the middle of the night with a bad cramp. It's bad. But I can get up out of my bed and stretch my leg out. Jesus couldn't. Can you imagine all the pain that's going on? You're bleeding to death. You're, you're tired. You're going into shock. And now you begin to cramp. And there's nothing you can do about it. Your muscles are cramping all over the place. Can you imagine? I can't imagine. And up and down he goes. And up and down he goes. You know that sometimes when a person died, and it took a while, took Jesus six hours, sometimes they just leave him up there. We know that people wanted to take Jesus' body down. We'll see that later. They'd leave the body up there to be picked away by birds until there was nothing left until scavengers would pick it all apart, and nothing left. We know that it was a long, drawn-out process. You know, there, there's, um, um, in history, we find that some people lived, made it, lived nine days on the cross dying. So it's excruciatingly painful, and it, and it just goes on and on and on. And Jesus is on that cross. And so when we read words like, and he was crucified, we think, oh yeah, we have no idea what that word means. Now, we wear the cross around our necks. First century person, and it's fine to wear a cross around your neck, nothing wrong with that. A first century person, if they saw that cross around our neck, they go, what is that? Well, that's a cross, you know, you mean the, what is the stamp or the, they put Jesus on. What, you, why would you wear that around your neck? And like somebody said, I remember decades ago, they said, it'd be like, uh, the, the equivalent for us today would be like wearing an electric chair around our neck as a symbol. And that's what Jesus, that's what's happening to him. Now, let me close it off. <clears throat> Verse 36, he's up on the cross. It says, and sitting down, these are the soldiers. They began to keep watch over him there. I, you know what? I, I, 
I, I, I just got this as I was reading just the last bit of notes before I started. I go, oh my gosh, I never saw this before. They sat down at Jesus' feet. The same thing that Mary does, remember? She says at Jesus' feet. Because it's the place of perfect peace and rest and learning. And that's what we need to do, sit at his feet. But it says while they're there, watch this. They began to keep watch over him there. Huh. What did Jesus tell Peter, James, and John in the garden? Remain here and keep watch with me. Once again, that's where Peter should have been. He missed out. Mr. Simon missed out. And so another Simon takes his spot. And he missed out again. He could have kept watch there. But now the Roman soldiers take his spot. Isn't that crazy? That well, I never saw that before today. Now here's my last thought, very last thought. And we'll pick this up next week at this spot. Verse 37. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now we know from other Gospels it's written in... Um, Latin, Hebrew, and Greek. Because Latin was the language of the world. Uh, Greek was the language uh, during uh, Alexander the Great Hellenization when they took over the world. They, people had to learn Greek. New Testament's written in Greek. And then Hebrew, the, Latin, the language of the Hebrews. So everybody could understand what that sign read as they were walking by. Everybody. But here's what's a, one fascinating thought that I'll end up in, and I'll pick up there next time we get there. Because this sign, when Jesus walked, any criminal walked here on the cross, they would hang it around their neck. It's crime. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. And when he get to the cross, then the, the person, they go up and they nail this cross over the person's head. So we'll, we'll do, talk about that thing next week because it's really fascinating. But the sign that Pilate has up on his head is, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. What is the question, or one of the questions, that Pilate asked Jesus in that trial. He said, are you the king of the Jews? And Pilate answers his own question at the crucifixion by having a sign nailed above Jesus' head, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Any wonder why Pilate went crazy after this? Hmm. What are you going to do with Jesus? Well, i got to stop there. It's time, and I'll pick it up there next time. So, hey, hopefully um, it blessed you. It illuminated the crucifixion for you somewhat and gave you a greater appreciation for what Jesus has done for you. Uh, hopefully we'll see you Sunday, Father's Day. You got, bless you guys. You have a great day. See you later.